when I was in secondary school, lunchtime was the major social point of the day when there, there was the designated time, right, to sit together to eat. Now, the major worry as an awkward teenager, as opposed to being an awkward adult now, but then as an awkward teenager, was whether you would get stuck sitting by yourself in the lunchroom at a moment designed for people to sit together. If nobody made room for you at, at their table and if, if no one welcomed you into their group, well, in that situation, your isolation was noticeable and pointed as you ate alone. Now, the point is that our table fellowship of sorts, well, it actually carries implications, doesn't it? When someone, when we welcome someone to, to eat with us, I mean, it makes a point that there's unity between us. We will share our food, our life sustenance with you. And that's a meaningful thing. But when we exclude someone from eating with us, well, indeed, that makes a point too, doesn't it? It suggests that there is division sufficient that we cannot even bear time to sit together to eat. There, there is that inexplicable aspect of eating together that the atmosphere really does either note the harmony and growing affection for one another as we have a good time around the table or or the sense that someone has disjointed the fellowship and made it uncomfortable. And in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, we, we see that sort of situation play out. But with the high stakes of gospel implications. In, in this circumstance, eating together was not simply about who had the right social standing at school, but about who was acknowledged to be part of God's true people. The implications in this situation concerned what is required to be saved. Now, before we get right into that, it might be useful to take a moment to recap where we are in this in this letter. So Paul wrote it on the way to the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, where the issue of whether the gospel required circumcision as a condition for salvation would be addressed. And he started this letter by rebuking the Galatians for abandoning the gospel, essentially on that point. And then, after he opened there, he he set out to prove how they can know that the gospel which he, Paul, preached is divine revelation rather than human invention. And we're still in that section where he's proving that. His proof is the story of how the gospel as divine revelation converted him from being a persecutor of the church to being an apostle and and also his trips to Jerusalem established his unity in the gospel 
with the Jerusalem apostles in how they understood, in what they understood the gospel to be and how they understood it to shape the Christian life. Now, in our passage today, 11 to 14, Paul continued to prove. The story continues. Paul continued to prove that the gospel was divinely revealed because, right, in this situation, it's clear that that the gospel is revealed because even the Jerusalem apostles, supposedly, you know, perhaps someone suggested that these are the preeminent authorities in the church, even they were subject to rebuke by the message itself. So it is not as though even the Jerusalem apostles had the authority to announce any message they wanted. They were subject to the authority of the gospel's revealed content. So that's, that's what we're trying to get a hold of today. Now the main point... The main point is that the church must be a place of unity and acceptance among believers. The church must be a place of unity and acceptance among believers. We're going to think about this in three points. The story concludes the sweetness of the church and the supremacy of God. So first, let's think about how this story concludes. Now, maybe maybe you've noticed, if you pay attention to the order of service uh, as you read through it, maybe you've noticed that the title of this series in Galatians is The Fellowship and the Faith. Now, what's that about? I, I think it might be the moment to explain why... We've titled, I've titled this series that. Now, the first thing happening in this letter, as I hope is clear by this point, is that Paul recounts the story of his conversion and apostleship. But, but that story revolves around Paul's relationship to the church. Moreover, it culminates, the story culminates in this encounter in verse 11 to 14 about how the church is the place of fellowship among believers, including Jew and Gentile, no matter what they're eating. So so the first portion of Galatians is essentially about the doctrine of the church, about its confessional and its practical unity. So, the fellowship. But then if you look at verse 16, which is printed there for you, you see that we will soon be working through the next section that focuses on justification by faith. So the letter deals with the fellowship of the church and saving faith. So that's where we are. And we're focusing still now on churchly fellowship. If we can encapsulate our understanding of the church in Galatians so far, well, so far it's had its first application, at least, you know, to leaders. There's no hierarchy among the apostles who come from different regions because their authority is each grounded in the divinely revealed message 
which the church confesses together. Authority is in the message, not the messenger. And we see that, again, to some, to some degree in our verses now, in that, in that Paul rebuked Peter because Peter was condemned. And, and now that simply means uh, here that Peter stood in the wrong because of his actions. Paul isn't saying Peter wasn't saved or anything like that. He simply, Peter's practice was obviously and publicly, noticeably wrong. But Paul was able to rebuke Peter so severely because Peter is subject to the authority of the church's message, the gospel. Peter, even though a Jerusalem apostle, is liable to the message as confessed by the church. And this, again, highlights how the gospel is divinely revealed and is not the property of any group of superior apostles. Now, that's all well and good, right? And we've thought about the implications uh, for the church and its leadership in weeks past and, and how this whole section so far exhorts us to, to be churchly together and to be confessional. We've thought about that, though. And this portion today adds a layer, a further layer, to Galatians' significance for our understanding of the church. And here we see the the implications, the applications that are more pointedly for the rest of us, too. And we see that the church is a place where believers are meant to be in full fellowship together. Right? The, the payoff from Paul's rebuke about Peter separating himself from the Gentiles is that the church is supposed to be a place without separation between believers. What do we, how do I get there? What do, what do we see that leads us to that conclusion? Well, if you, I mean, it's on your sheet, but if we think, or if you turn there, uh, if we think about Acts 14, 24 to 28, uh, Paul and Barnabas have returned to Antioch from their first missionary journey, at the end of which they had planted the Galatian churches, right? So, so Paul's writing essentially from that context. If, if you, if you think I've accurately placed this letter, end of Acts 14, beginning of Acts 15. That's where Galatians was written. So in Acts 15, 1, 5, we then learn that some men came to Antioch. So that's where Paul and Barnabas are. Some men came from Jerusalem to Antioch, claiming that circumcision was required for salvation. Now that fits well the the scene that we have here in verses 11 to 14, doesn't it? Where, where Paul's explicit that in Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were, the end of Acts 14, in Antioch, men came from James, from, from Jerusalem. Or at least claiming to come in the name of James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church. Uh, they were at least using his name. I think it's questionable whether or not he resent sent them. I, I'm, Skeptical of that. And these men imposed the Mosaic laws on the church. They were the circumcision party, verse 12, we see. 
because their main focus was on the, on the necessity of circumcision. And even though Paul and Peter together had, as we've seen, already agreed this issue and opposed those dissenters who wanted to require circumcision back in verses 4 to 6, right? Despite that agreement, Peter now fell into fear. Verse 12, he's fearing the circumcision. And he acted inconsistently with what he knew be true. Now we can be hard on Peter. Uh, how can you act inconsistently with the gospel? <laughs> but how often do we find ourselves in such a similar predicament where unknowingly we, we listen to what someone has to say, we don't take account of the implications, and we too find ourselves acting inconsistently with what we know to be true. But in this situation, even Barnabas was pulled into the mix. right? And as Acts 15.2, which is there for you, noted, there was dispute, including him. The implications of this false teaching were that, as we see, were that the pastors of the church began not to eat with believers because Gentiles did not follow Jewish ceremonial law. The church became the high school lunchroom with, with Christians fearing and being subject to social exclusion and worrying about who would sit at the table with them, hoping that even their pastors would just consider them Christians. Now this event concludes Paul's story that proves the gospel is divinely revealed. And it proves that because it shows how the gospel message itself trumps the authority of any one church leader, no one is beyond correction from the message itself because the message itself belongs to Christ himself. Now that's the story, but that, that brings us to our second point, the sweetness of the church. We, we've gotten a hold on what's going on here, and we can push a little bit further into how this is significant for us. And We've seen how this dispute sparked between Paul and Peter, mainly because Peter listened to those who came from Jerusalem claiming to be from James' ministry, and they imposed Jewish ceremonial laws. And as as verse 12 tells us, uh, Peter was fearing the circumcision party, and, and he compromised his principles because of that fear. Why, though... Why would it matter for the church, especially today, whether Peter wanted to eat with Gentiles or not? Well, let's, let's work through the text together. You know, verse, verse 11 sets up this section and just tells us that it's about Paul's confrontation with Peter. That's, that's pretty clear. And then verse 12 says, for before men came from James, he, meaning Peter, was eating, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing, or because he was fearing, the circumcision party. 
So Peter didn't have a problem with what the Gentiles were doing or eating with them. He was he was fine with that. But then others showed up who looked down upon his practice and, and criticized him for it. And because he was afraid, he changed course. Now, we can think of a couple of things there. Sometimes, sometimes pastors and, and Christians abstain from certain things or, or don't voice their opinion in, in public, at, at least, about debatable issues or practice for the peace of the church to preserve people's consciences, that sort of thing. That, that's an, that's an exercise of discernment about wisdom issues. But that wasn't Peter's approach here. That's not, that's not what's happening in this situation. He was fully engaged in eating with the Gentiles. And then he changed his practice as a way to suggest that their practices were not sufficiently Christian. Verse 13, right? The, the fallout of that was, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Peter was acting fully out of accord with his principles and, and we ask how? Well, Paul tells us, verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, Something big is at stake here, right? He doesn't say that about other things. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? And so Peter was wrong. He was implying that the Gentiles were either subpar Christians were not Christians at all based on what they ate. Peter, who had participated in, in meals with them, now separated himself as at least an implicit endorsement of the requirement of Jewish ceremonial law actually for salvation. Why does that show us the sweetness of the church. Because that's what we're talking about in this point, right? How does how does this conflict show us the sweetness of the church? Because the church is a place where sinners can repent and be fully restored. Things go wrong in the church. We, we may well try our best, but, but we know that things happen, right? But God is good. God is good to make this a community whose culture has to be one of forgiveness. The church is a place where even when our problems can become public, things are still supposed to turn out all right. Paul, Paul rebuked Peter to his face 
in front of everybody. And yet when we get to Acts 15.6, on your sheet there, it's maybe worth taking a look at. When we get to that point, Peter was the first one to stand up and speak for the truth. Right? He didn't have to fear what people thought among Christians. He had to be afraid among the legalists who were saying you've got to do this, this, and this to be saved. But he didn't have to fear among Christians. And his mistake didn't mean that he no longer had a voice. Now what do we do with that? Well, first, first we see that we should handle our problems with other Christians directly. Direct does not mean blunt. It does not mean mean. It does not mean that we need to publicly rebuke everyone for everything. Right? Peter's mistake as an apostle was one of very public and very significant nature. But still, we, we see that the church... The way that we handle things is not by being a place where we gossip. It's not by being a place where we complain about our brothers and sisters behind their back. If we have an issue, we go to them directly. And we sort things out. We also see the sweetness of the church in that even when it takes some work, the church is a place where relationships are restored. Peter, despite, despite an, an intense circumstance that had just occurred, Peter turned around and spoke for Paul's cause at the Jerusalem Council. Despite a fierce interaction, the two men got back on the same page and promoted one another's ministries. As Christians, when misunderstanding and even disagreement occurs, we should be quick to give one another a charitable hearing, forgive one another, and, and then promote each other's causes again. Right? We, we, we go so far as we don't just let things lie. We work to forgive one another as best we can. We don't double down on being at odds with one another, but we work to reconcile. And then as, I mean, as, as Peter and Paul played out and as our shorter catechism explains the ninth commandment not to bear false witness, we, what does that require? That we promote our neighbor's good name. Genuine reconciliation. The sweetness of the church is in a community of acceptance and reconciliation. That brings us to our final point, the supremacy of God. What we've done so far is we've seen that the passage concludes Paul's story, the, the, the narrative section, essentially, uh, with climactically proving that the gospel is divinely revealed by demonstrating that even the apostles are subject to the authority 
of this divinely revealed message. Peter himself had to be called back into line. He was inconsistent with the truth of the gospel. We also saw how this this story and the end uh, and the end of it with a, a renewed and restored relationship, which shows the sweetness of the church, uh, is being a place where forgiveness and restoration occurs. So that's that's where we are so far. And although the example of the of the gospel's authority. And the church as a place of acceptance is, is clear in how the story goes. I think there's a question, right? Of, okay, is, is there a deeper principle? We have this example. And we can say, okay, we should follow the example of the apostles, but is there a deeper, a deeper principle that upholds these things for us today? Yeah. My answer is yes. God's majestic supremacy, God's supremacy undergirds the nature of the church's community. The the triune God from whom Jesus Christ has prayed that we as the church will be one as he and the Father are one. the Son of God praying that His people whom He represents would in some way resemble the characteristics of the unity of the Godhead. The supremacy of God sets the pattern for a community of unity. The Gospel as divinely revealed is the message that brings people together even in hard circumstances. In the first century, as, I mean, as we can see in our passage today, clearly some who joined the church from a, a Jewish background struggled to accept those who would live out their faith differently. But God's supremacy is able to overcome division between people groups and even in arguments. God delivers, delivered and continues to distribute the gospel. The gospel. And so it trumps any preferences that might fragment the church. The gospel is preeminent. Certainly Christians must be united in issues that the scripture addresses however hard they might be to tackle. There's no question about that. But we too easily let the things that occupy our minds become gospel issues. We, We cannot pull issues of cultural dispute and division that are that. I mean, right? There are things that that are cultural, that we debate about. We cannot pull them into the church and split up God's people because of those things. Those of differing... Right, and why? Why can we not split? Because, because we all belong to God. At the end of the day, each of us 
who have professed faith in Jesus and belong to this or any other church belong to the one God. Jew and Gentile belong to God. Those of different cultural and political preferences even belong to God. Those with different music preferences belong to God. Those with different takes on a whole host of issues across the spectrum belong to God. He is our supreme source of unity. Our stances on cultural and wisdom issues are not the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins to forgive us of all iniquity and rose for our justification by faith and not by any other cultural standard. That's what's happening here. By faith and not by any other cultural standard, we are joined to the risen Jesus Christ and receive Those blessings, not by anything but faith alone. So let let this passage exhort us to be careful and, and slow to think through our decisions in light of the first principles of the gospel's authority and the church's unity. Peter, right, we see it here. Peter too hastily listened to those who taught error and he made a grave mistake. Inconsistent with the truth of the gospel. Right? He, he did not relate his practical living out his faith to, to the best decisions in light of first principles of the gospel itself and the unity of the church. Now I'm going to put an obvious head on this, I suppose, which is more just an awareness point than an exhortation to the rest of you. But I I think it's notable as we think about this exact thing here, right? Uh, We as a church, LCPC is in a season wherein we are coming out of pandemic restrictions. Now, our session is trying to make the best decisions for the overall life of the church to magnify the gospel and demonstrate God's glory in the things we do as we move forward. So, we're eager to hear from you directly (laughs) as you process, as Paul was direct with Peter, Maybe perhaps not as, yeah, unless it gets to be a problem, maybe not as uh, intense as that. But as you process our way forward, we're eager to hear from you. But we do not want to make Peter's mistake of moving too quickly on any one issue. We want to think in light of these principles. And the reason, the reason is that God is over the church. And we are his. God is our head and we belong to We want to direct all that we do to the majestic supremacy of God. Because he sent Christ as our Savior. We want to be a people joined in Christ because Christ 
is the only Savior for each of us who place our trust in him. It's good that in God's providence, I mean, he, he's richly generous to us. In God's providence, it's good that today the passage before us has to do with eating together. Because today also, we come to eat the Lord's Supper together. And whatever issues may cause us to disagree, however small or, or large those might feel, well, we live out this passage, don't we? We live out this passage by eating together today. We come to, to this table as sinners professing the Lord Jesus Christ equally in need of him, knowing that all who receive this meal come equally as those bought with the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for even tricky passages like this that that demonstrate the imperfections of your church, even in even among the apostles, dispute and disagreement happening. And we're thankful for that because we know that in our moments of of at least imperfection, that we are one with your church of all ages. Deficiency and problems are not new to us. And we're thankful to know that you have stood by your church always. And we're thankful to know that you've stood by your church and worked in us, among us, for harmony, for unity, for the benefit of the gospel, because we belong to you. And we belong to you because of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.